used my identity to embezzle from our software clients and just destroyed everything, our net, our net worth, our wealth, our, uh, our health, you know, just about my marriage, uh, all of it went down to cybercrime because I didn't know, you know, anything from the inside job to how cybercrime worked because, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, it wasn't really on our radar. It's time! Work! I want to connect the listeners to the best of the best. Welcome to the Evolve Broker Podcast. I am your host, Pat Costello, the co-founder and principal at Evolve MJ. Our mission for the podcast is to bring the insurance industry the best of the best. My guest today is John Cilio. John is a Harvard grad that had his identity stolen. His identity was used to embezzle $300,000 from his clients. While the thief covered his crimes using Cilio's identity, John and his business were held legally and financially responsible for the felonies committed. The breach destroyed John's company and consumed two years of his life as he fought to stay out of jail. In response, John made it his mission to help organizations and individuals protect the data that underlies their wealth. Combining real-world experience with years of study, John became an award-winning author, trusted advisor, and keynote speaker on identity theft, cybersecurity, online privacy, and digital fraud. John's body of work includes engagements with the Pentagon, USA Today, Visa, Rachel Ray, the FDIC, Pfizer, 60 Minutes, Homeland Security, Blue Cross, Anderson Cooper, Allstate, The Washington Post, The Federal Reserve, Fox Business, University of Massachusetts, and organizations of all sizes. Today, we discussed his story and how people and businesses can better protect themselves from hacking attacks. Please download, subscribe, and leave a review on whatever platform you are listening on, and feel free to reach out to me at pat at evolvedbrokerpodcast.com with any comments or suggestions for the podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by First Insurance Funding. First is the leading premium finance company in insurance and is known throughout the industry for their personalized service and quote flexibility. If you're tired of sending quote requests for smaller premiums to multiple companies, not leaving enough time to negotiate larger opportunities, then choose First as your primary financing source and experience the first difference today. Without further ado, here's John. John Cilio, welcome to the Evolved Broker Podcast. Hey, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me, Pat. No problem. No problem. Your world and my world are very similar because you are highly associated with cybersecurity at the moment. And I all I do is cyber insurance. And so your story popped up on my radar and I thought there was no better story to tell our brokers and the businesses that we work with from a cyber insurance standpoint, your story, because I mean, just reading it had a huge impact on me. So I'm hoping we can discuss that today. And I'm hoping maybe John, I would just love to, you know, get a little bit of background on yourself. And I believe you're in Denver right now, but you know, where you grew up, I know you went to Harvard. If you could just kind of fill us in on a few details of your background and then we can kind of jump into the specifics of your story. Yeah, sure. You want all the private stuff, right? You're testing me out. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, my background, um, yeah, I was lucky enough to go to that Ivy League college, loved every every moment of it. That led me into management consulting after some years uh, living in New Zealand and Hawaii and and doing a lot of hiking and canoeing and kayaking. Um, after a couple of years in the management consulting world, I decided I did not want to work for another company. I wanted to do my own thing. So I moved back to Denver where I grew up, lovely place, the Rocky Mountains, and took over a family computer business that uh, was my parents. They started out of their garage as a TV repair shop in 1964. And uh, we can get into the details of what happened after that. That's where the cybercrime started and kind of mm. destroyed my life. But uh, what else do you want to know? <laughs> well, I just have to make one comment because we talked about this before we uh, started recording. 
but I, you're in Denver right now, correct? I'm actually in Breckenridge, Colorado okay. right now. That's what we've got going on behind. I'm uh, doing a little fly fishing and mountain biking at the, the moment. That's amazing. I was, for all the audience members out there, I was telling John before we logged on, I thought his background was fake. So if you're watching this on YouTube or in any of our highlight clips, John's background is actually real. <laughs> Just want to clarify that for anyone that's listening. So, okay, cool. So you're in Breckenridge right now. That's epic. Okay, so you start... Uh, excuse me, you, you kind of joined the family business, it sounds like. And it, it also, when, when I was reading your story, it sounds like that business was super profitable. It sounded like it was like a $2 million business. What was, what was the business worth and, and kind of where, where did you think the traje trajectory was going? Yeah, so let me, I'll give you a little bit more background because this is where, you know, stuff kind of gets interesting. So uh, mom and dad started literally a TV repair shop out of their garage in the okay. 60s. It grew into a computer company that by the time I started to take over in the late 90s um, was doing, you know, computer networking, security, that type of stuff. However, these big box stores had come to town that made it really difficult to compete on margin on those type of businesses. So my best friend, my rock climbing partner, Doug and I, um, started up a little internet software division of the company. We were an early application service provider, an ASP. In other words, we were the cloud, kind of before the cloud was popularized. We started up an accounting package for small businesses so that they could use this you know, highly scalable enterprise-level accounting, but pay per-seat licensing. And uh, that was the business uh, that became, it was called the retail engine. It became highly profitable. Uh, we were doing very well, very early on. And that, uh, that's what turned into an entire mess. Um, it, as it turns out, this best friend, my rock climbing partner, um, was using my identity to embezzle from our software clients, hundreds of clients. And so when the district attorney's office showed up at my door at about 8 a.m. one morning, I'm sitting there having having a little tea party with my daughters, um, which I did every Tuesday. I would take time out just for them, shows up and tells me that I'm, you know, about to be charged for embezzling uh, $298,000 from my my software customers. Oh, no. And that, that's uh, it was just. Oh, it was unbelievable. It was, uh, you know, three years of fighting a criminal case. There was, you know, evidence that looked like I had done it. Yeah. And, uh, of course, it was my business partner, Doug, who had done it, used my identity to embezzle from our software clients and just destroyed everything. Our net, our net worth, our wealth, our, uh, our health, you know, just about my marriage, uh, all of it went down to cybercrime because... I didn't know, you know, anything from the inside job to how cybercrime worked because, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, it wasn't really on our radar. Okay. I want to dive deep into a couple of details. So you said this was your best friend and your rock climbing partner. How did you initially meet this business partner? Yeah. So when the business, when the traditional computer business was struggling, we knew we needed to find something different. And on top of it, in 1999, so uh, the family business had programmed a mainframe accounting package that we used and we sold the sporting goods store around the world. That piece of software was going dead. It was literally one of the few pieces of software that you could not reprogram to have a four-digit year. So Y2K mattered for that package. And when that happened, not only did we need to find, you know, something for our clients, we needed to find something for uh, our own business. We needed a new accounting package. And one of our customers, Doug, was uh, a, a whiz at another uh, accounting package that was based out of Memphis, Tennessee. So we took that package, we ported it to the internet, we kind of converted it and uh, uh, using you know FTP and secure FTP, we made this cloud-based application. So we knew each other for years working as business uh, and client and became friends that way, started rock climbing that way. And then we turned to him to help us move into that accounting world. Okay, okay. So you guys begin working together. And when you say that he embezzled money from your clients using your identity. How did he specifically do it? 
He so because it was an accounting package, okay. right? We had access to both accounts payable and accounts receivable for these clients, meaning he could see the money that was coming in and going on any of them. Well, this was before security was even the, you know, the tiniest threat to us. It was just not part of it. Now, yeah, inside fraud existed, but cybercrime using the digits, the 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 numbers and the data to to commit fraud just wasn't a thing yet. So he was able to essentially cook the books, knowing what was coming and going on each side, make up false invoices, and then do um, ACH transfers uh, between their accounts and, in this case, uh, his account. And he did it using my banking login credentials. So when he embezzled, he embezzled as me. That's why I'm the one that just about took the fall. Oh, my God. So, okay, so he's doing this, and he does this with... $298,000. And you had no idea until this FBI agent showed up at your door? Yeah. So it was uh, the district attorney's office, the economic crimes unit of the district attorney's office. Okay. His name was Agent Brad Wymura. And I'm, you know, I'm sitting there having, spending the morning with my daughters, giving my wife a break and, and the doorbell rings. And he's standing there, has a subpoena, tells me I'm about to be, you know, charged and that that I'll likely spend a decade in prison for for these crimes. And that's, you know, boom, that was the starting line that headed to the next, you know, two year criminal trial. And then two years after that, un, unwinding everything that Doug had done. OK, so what tipped him off that there was some illegal activity going on and. What made him, obviously, I think, you know, there must have been something that made him assume it was you based on your partner's activity, but what tipped him off? I think what tipped him off was at some point, the, the dollar amount. So, you know, like many criminals, Doug did it in small micro adjustments, right? And he just kept getting bigger and bigger. And um, there was just this... You know, even we had it. I got to tell you, my wife just felt like Doug is too good to be true. There's something wrong here. Even though we were making legitimate, great money on this, there's something wrong with this person. And I did not listen to that gut feeling of hers. And I think the client had the same thing. Like, this is all too smooth. Doug is working too hard. He's up at midnight looking at our accounts. And uh, at some point, they had actually had a convicted felon. The, the client who initially caught him had a convicted reformed felon from financial crimes who I think could see what was going on with these double entries. Oh, she, and she did wow. the accounting. Okay, so it was one of your clients that saw that there was, was something the fishy going on? Yeah, it was the client okay. who reported us to the DA's office. And of course, the client saw it as my login. It was my banking login. And then when the DA got it and the, the police got involved, right. it was all my sign-ins. Because, right. you know, if I, Pat, if I take your login in your username and I'm doing banking as you and I'm doing accounting as you and I have access to your QuickBooks or whatever your accounting package is, I can do everything I need to make it look exactly like you did all of these crimes. How long did it take you to figure out that it was Doug? Your business. Oh, this partner? is such a such an interesting story. So we're I'm sitting there. So right, I'm in business with my parents. I'm mm -hmm. taking over the business. Um, it's been in business, you know, at that point for 35 or 40 years, and we're on a phone call. My father, Doug, and myself. And we're talking about how we prove, because we didn't know it was Doug, right? At this point, we had no idea it was Doug. We didn't know who it was. Mm -hmm. we're, we're trying to find the documentation to prove that these were legitimate transfers of money. And Doug says, I'm going to send you an Excel spreadsheet that's three and a half years old that I have kept track of every transfer and who authorized it. And he sends that through to me while I'm on the phone, while my father's on the phone, on email, and I open it up and thank God I had been a consultant because one of the things you learn as a consultant is to look at the metadata or the data about the data about the Excel file. And I could see that the document had not been created three and a half years earlier. It had been created the night before. And 
that moment, I mean, literally the blood drained from my face, the hair stood up on my neck. When I saw that date, I knew that it was Doug. I said, Hey, I got to go. I, the kids are calling. I hung up. I called my dad back. Um, and, and everything started, but that was months after this initial process had started. And then, you know, I became the lead witness rather than the lead suspect at some point. Um, thanks to a oddly a voicemail that Doug's wife left admitting to him having done it. No way. That's yeah, wild. That one voicemail. I mean, it, you know, that piece of technology today, it wouldn't work because of deep fake technology. It wouldn't be admissible. Right. But back then when I went through the trial, it was admissible. And that, that voicemail is what ultimately got me off. Did she accidentally give him up via voicemail or did she, was it, did she say it on purpose? She's a good person. She would never do it again because of what it wrought in her life. But she was a good person trying to do the right thing, just like we were as a business paying back these customers who, you know, once they showed that money had been taken, we paid that out of family money that, um, you know, because Doug wasn't going to pay anything and we didn't even know it was Doug at that point. So she was doing the same thing. She had a good heart mm -hmm. and was calling to say, hey, you know, he loves you. I'm sorry. This was a terrible thing. And clearly he was, a, you know, is sick. He's He's got uh, borderline personality disorder, dissociative disorder. So he was doing all of this stuff almost as a second personality. Wow. Okay. So you discovered that it was Doug and how long from, you know, the, the person from the DA's office showing up at your door until you kind of like exit the situation, get out of the situation, get to your, your freedom and your normal life. How long was that process with everything going on with the legal battle? So August 12th of 2003 was the day that the DA showed up at my door and told me I was going to jail. Um, the final court case was ended just over two years later. Okay. Um, and it, by that time, I was no longer the, the suspect. It ended two years later. And then, believe it or not, I had to spend, after Doug got out of jail, it was only an 18-day day sentence. White-collar crime is prosecuted in that way. It was a 54-day term. They commute it in Colorado automatically to 18 days. It's it's terrible that white-collar crime is prosecuted that way, but it, it just is compared to violent crime. Uh -huh. um, I then spent 18 months with him in the office, believe it or not, because we had to forensically unwind everything he had done to all of these clients and, uh, you know, and either pay it off. Or in this case, we um, sold the company to him for nothing for a dollar and and gave him all of the civil responsibility of this, which he declared bankruptcy and, you know, never paid a penny of it. Oh, my God. So if I caught that correctly, he only spent 18 days in jail. 18 days. Yeah, it was, oh. it, it was such a mixed bag because you have to understand it was, he deserved years in jail mm -hmm. for what he had stolen. Mm -hmm. And, and by the way, it went way beyond the 200,000 when you, we looked into it, that was one client. Mm -hmm. There were many, many customers. Mm -hmm. Um, but I also had to unwind this and he was the technical brains behind the software. I couldn't do it without him. Yeah. So spending 18 months, essentially what felt like sleeping with the enemy, you know, it was a, a, a mixed, a mixed blessing that he was not in jail because I could not have done that. And it would have taken even longer. Right, right. I'm very familiar with that process because when we have a, a cyber claim go down, we have uh, the whole forensics process that occurs afterwards to figure out what happened, what data was, was breached, you know, if we need to fix anything within the system. And those uh, forensic costs are some of the most expensive parts of the claim. So if you're looking back at this whole process, was there anything you could have done to keep Doug from doing what he did or better protect your own identity? Oh, gosh. So, so many things, Pat. I, I mean, I do entire keynote presentations and breakouts on this. Um, there's all kinds of mistakes that I made in terms of, you know, when you're hiring uh, people 
vetting in the proper way, background checks, putting up, so to speak, alarm signs on your data. You know, the 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 really effective part of having an alarm on your house is not the alarm. It's the sign in front of your house that lets people know, lets burglars know, hey, let's go elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Well, there's the same type of devices with data where you can say, listen, we're looking at it. We know where our data is. We know what's happening. We've got oversight. Don't mess with it. Mm-hmm. Um, personally, simple things, having credit frozen that he couldn't, you know, max out my my credit, not just our money, but using my identity to max out credit. Um, simple computer fixes that, um, you know, updates to software that hadn't been done. I mean, th- that's why I, you know, wrote my first book and went into the business because I do not want other organizations or more importantly, the people and dads and moms and friends at the end of them to, to suffer from this. Well, I appreciate you sharing your story on this, John, and your experience is, is so unique. One other thing that stood out when I was reading about your background, was there some sort of dumpster diving issue that you experienced as well? And there was a, was there another woman that stole your identity? Yeah. So the, the, the prequel to this story and why I was so distracted while this was going on was because a woman, Rosemary Serrano, um, she actually purchased my identity off of the dark web that was put there by a crime ring called the Cashmen. So this is 15 or so years ago. The Cashmen are trash men who drive around neighborhoods in a garbage truck dressed like garbage men and women. And they collect documents, take them away. They're no longer, you have no right to them if you put them on your curb. They're their documents. You have no legal right to them. They filter through them for socials and so forth. Well, my identity got sold on the dark web. Rosemary Serrano um, purchased that, used it to purchase a home in, in Florida, went bankrupt, declared bankruptcy as me, drained our life savings, defaulted on the loan. All of this, if it sounds familiar, is because it was made into the the blockbuster movie Identity Thief with Jason Bateman and Melissa McCarthy, which was was based on our story. No way. Yeah. So that was going on. And Doug saw that, I think, and took advantage of how distracted I was with that case and kind of used it as a, a springboard for what he did. Oh, when it rains, it pours. Oh, man, it sure does. Okay. In that situation, so that, that, I guess, I don't know if you'd call it a company or if what you, you'd call that group that was driving around and taking people's data. That was illegal, right? So, yes and no. Okay. Um, when you put the trash out on your curb, it is public property at that point. It has to be in order for them to take it to the trash. Okay. Is there a, a law that says you can't go around collecting anybody's trash? Probably not. Is it illegal? I think most people would consider that to be illegal, but I've never, ever seen a case prosecuted when the trash has been on the curb. Okay. Okay. They go into the trash. They piece together some of your sensitive personal information, and then they sell it on the dark web, I'm assuming. Is that the process that that Rosemary woman went to to, to, to buy your identity? Yeah, exactly. You know, that was back before the cyber criminals had figured out that it's much more efficient to hack a million identities from Marriott or Chase or, you know, Mm -hmm. Anthem, Mm -hmm. a million at a time rather than one at a time. So, you know, that dumpster diving has kind of slowed and people have gotten more cognizant and aware of it as true cyber criminal, you know, organized cyber criminals who have business degrees figured out, oh my gosh, we can hack a million of these and and either sell them or ransom them or whatever. Yeah. Well, this is such a good example of a data breach that most people don't normally think about because like paper records are a common thing that is either included or not included in cyber policies, cyber insurance policies. And I'm really glad that we're bringing it up because these breaches do happen. And, you know, most people think that, you know, when they think of cyber, they think of your digital identity, you know, electronic transfers, you know, they think of the internet and they don't think of, you know, you, you not shredding information the right way. 
So I'm glad that we're bringing it up because I think it I think it's an, a different element of cybercrime that most people don't think about. Yeah, I'll tell you those um, even you know what's left out on your desk. Um, talk about a major source of inside fraud. Uh, you know the cleaners, the painters, the repair people. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're real, maybe they're not. I'll tell you what. There's almost a, uh, not a business that I can't dress properly yeah. and talk my way into. And whether that's to collect stuff off of the desk, look through the file cabinets, or plug in a little device that taps me into their Wi-Fi system and lets me into all of their network. It, it's just, it's as simple as can be. Mm-hmm. And John, I know you do like live iPhone hacking on stage when you're giving presentations. So if anyone's listening and... um they want to bring John out to uh, really show their clients exactly how wild and real the exposure is. I highly recommend it. But John, I'd, I'd like to kind of just go back into that story. So she steals your identity. When did you know, what, what tipped you off in this story what, uh, about you know, this lady having your identity or did you just see money getting transferred out of your bank account? No, no, no. Much more fun than that. I oh, no. literally had security guards physically escorted, escort me out of my bank of, you know, 20 years at that point um, because of, of crimes that had been committed in my name. So my identity was gone. The bank accounts are empty and there's a record of me committing these crimes. So believe it or not, Rosemary Serrano, all she did, this is called synthetic identity theft. She created an identity, including ID, credit cards for John Serrano. She took my identity, my social, applied a male name, her last name, and, and created a synthetic identity. And that's how she did it all. And the reason I found out was when I went into my bank, there was nothing there and they were walking me out the door for a, a red flag for crimes. Oh, wow. Okay. It was a bad couple months. So you're, you're basically going to the bank, like what is going on here? And I had, I didn't have a clue. And by the way, when you talk to the police about it, you know, back then, that was long enough ago that they had no, there was no term identity theft really mm-hmm. at that point. They called it check fraud because mm-hmm. that's electronic check fraud because that's about all they had was that, but, or ACH fraud. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, I, I guess I was early on in the, uh, you know, the exposing of identity theft. Yeah. Well, that actually hits home with me because at our last Cyber Sales Academy, we had Frank Abagnale from the movie Catch Me If You Can, the real guy, come out and, and talk about how he performed check fraud. So it, that's really interesting to hear where the, the cybercrime response was at at the time. Okay, so your bank account's drained. You're getting... Were you taken to to prison or what was the next step in that story from there? No, I wasn't. Thank goodness. I wasn't taken to prison. I went into a kind of a discovery process with my lawyers, the district attorney's office. And in the midst of turning over all of the data, that's when the voicemail got left um, by Doug's wife. We handed that over. They started to think, okay, this, you know, this, it might not actually, you know, they had a fish on the hook, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. All they want to do is close the case. And they had reams of data login information from Colorado National Bank that it was me that did it. So they wanted it easy. But as they started to hear this, and then at one point, so a lot of people, you know, Doug, obviously a very sick person, but at one small moment in this whole thing, he, for like three minutes, admitted to me that he had done it and had a moment of contrition. And in that moment, I had him sign something that said, John is not at fault for this. Um, It was all my fault. Uh, You know, I I did everything and he signed it. And between that and the voicemail, handing that over uh, eventually to the DA changed changed the whole course. Okay. Okay. In the particular part of the story with Rose Marie, how did she, did, did she ever get caught or what was the story with her? You know, this is the sad part of 
cybercrime, no, they almost never get caught either because there's no hard evidence mm -hmm. because really in this case, when I you know worked with the police and the FBI, I was like, even back then, I was like 6,500 on the check fraud um, investigation list. They never got to it. Oh, and if it was that bad in 2003 to 2005, imagine what it is in 2022, mm -hmm. where there are you know multiple millions, if not billions of data records stolen. They just don't have time to, to go after and prosecute. Yeah. How did you get all the information on her and figure out exactly what she had done to be successful in stealing your identity? Yeah, so most of it because in using my identity, I eventually had to go back and clear my credit, for example. So when I got my credit, which was about a two-year process, getting my credit back to be mine and then clearing it, I could see everywhere that she spent money, where she bought the house, what she paid for it. When she set up credit cards in my name, I could eventually go back and look at the accounts and see what she was purchasing. So we just pieced it all together. And right there on my credit report, it says two things, Rosemary, Rosemary Serrano and um, John Serrano. And it had, you know, negative credit debits there all throughout because of, you know, they, they used my credit up, so to speak. They used my net worth. Did you ever find a way to confront her? Like, have you ever met her in person? No. And here's why. So even using the name, you know, Rosemary Serrano is a little bit uncertain if that's her, because now, and maybe back then, they actually filter through multiple identities. Mm -hmm. So they'll steal one identity to synthesize with a second identity. So when I showed up at her address in um, Commerce City, Colorado, which was local, you know, I was in Denver. When I showed up there, the people had no idea who I was talking about. So whether or not she was just using that address and plucking stuff out of the mailbox because they were on vacation or you don't know. You, you, yeah. the, the number of people, I think it's less than one-tenth of one percent of perpetrators that are ever caught. That's brutal. So she's still out there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. She's still out there. Doug's still out there. Yeah. Well, yeah. And that keeps me on stage and, you know, speaking. <laughs> it's unfortunate, but it's the truth. It's a good learning lesson for individuals and businesses that are out there. And uh, I, I would be nervous for any of those folks if you were able to confront them because. I also just learned that you are a, at least a second degree black belt, maybe third or more. I, um, you know, when in the midst of this, my uh, my oldest daughter, Sophie, asked in. So when I was in the trial, asked if we could take up Taekwondo together. And I, I'm not totally certain if she was trying to repair our relationship that was massively damaged from me spending all my time on this case or if she was just, you know, prepping me for prison. Yeah. But <laughs> we spent the next 10 years fighting, you know, playing, uh, you know, sparring in Taekwondo, as you yeah. call it, and earning our black belts way better than, than sitting in jail. But honestly, part of the reason I did it was because I thought for a year-long period that I was the one that was going to be in jail. Oh, my gosh. Wow. I, I'm glad I brought that up. Um, cause I think it really shows the impact of, of what that situation was having on you. John, you are like the poster child for identity theft and you know, whether it was this Rosemary woman or your business partner, Doug, I mean, there's gotta be so many learning lessons there in the Rosemary example. And in that dumpster diving instance, what could you, do you feel like there's anything you could have done there that was different from the situation with Doug to protect your identity or like maybe it's shredding information in a certain way or making sure you have multi-factor authentication on all your accounts? Was there, was there things you weren't doing then that you're like, I'm making sure this happens now every single time? Absolutely. Um, really easy ones. Yes. Shredding. It almost doesn't matter. You know, the shredders now are all confetti shredders. Those are good enough. Right. Absolutely. Anything with your identity on it, you should shred it. Um, credit freeze. 
which I'm sure you've heard of. You tell Experian, Equifax, and TransUnion, hey, I want to freeze my credit. Nobody gets in. No Rosemary, no Doug. They don't get to use it. They don't get to spend my, you know, my credit worthiness. And all you're doing is putting a password on your credit file. It's it's simple. It's a little bit of a pain when you, you know, refinance and you have to unfreeze it. Doesn't affect your credit score you know, has no negative impact other than it locks down that credit profile with the three, the three bureaus. Mm -hmm. um, password managers, like such a no brainer. You need long and strong passwords. None of us, you know, can remember all the hundred passwords we need online. So having those password managers like one password or dash lane or mm -hmm. last pass, last pass. totally. Yeah. Oh, it's they're fantastic. Mm -hmm. Two-factor authentication. If you haven't turned that on with your bank, your insurance company, your health provider, uh, your Gmail, your Facebook, you're totally nuts because yeah. it's super easy to buy the data that was breached elsewhere. You know, your yeah. data is breached at TransUnion and then it's sold on the dark web and they use it to get into your bank account because you use that same password. Well, mm -hmm. with two-factor authentication, a two-step login, a key fob or a, a text that comes to your phone mm -hmm. or an app. Like you stop all of that man in the middle attack. Mm -hmm. Those are all great recommendations. Um, in terms of your story and how it played out, was there any sort of restitution that you received? Like, was there any sort of like payback that you got? Or like, was there any replenishment of the funds that were stolen from your personal bank, out, bank account or anything like that? Nope, because it was all, it all went to the clients. Everything that was recovered and everything that Doug paid was for the yeah. criminal trial, which was ended up being him. And that all went back to the clients. So no, we lost the multi-million dollar business. Accounts were drained. I had no job. My wife went back and took a second job teaching. Um, no restitution. Now, that said, you know, as much as I would never, ever want to experience anything that we went through again, I'm in an awesome place from it. I mean, like most things, you know, if you take the lemons and you make something sweeter out of it, you know, I wrote a book, the book led to a speaking tour, which has led to many years of, of recovering those funds and going beyond that. And in the meantime, helping some people out and keeping organizations out of the, the headlines. So restitution. Yeah. We kind of, you know, mm -hmm found a way to, to gain our own restitution by yeah. turning it into something positive. Yeah. That's really cool. I, I'm glad that there, there's such a positive outcome from that. And you mentioned that there is a Jason Bateman movie about your story. That's so cool. It's so funny. One of our uh, rapid fire questions that we have at the end was if your story was a movie, who would you want to play you and who would you want to direct the movie? So can you tell me a little bit more about the movie and, and how that worked out? Yeah. So in the midst of all of this going on with the identity theft case with Rosemary and the cybercrime case with Doug, um, the studio called because I had given a speech at the bank of the producers of the movie. And they called and said, hey, we, you know, we'd like to have you consult on this project, use your story. So I did this work. Um, and I was kind of naive at the time. I didn't know to contract up and get lawyers and all of that stuff. And uh, they, so they took it. I mean, you know, Jason Bateman lives in Denver. His identity is stolen by a woman. She moves to Florida. It's like the first third or so of the movie is just dead on. And then it just wow. gets nutty. Yeah. The studio in the end, um, we were supposed to get credits for it didn't give a credit, yeah. didn't get paid a penny, nothing. So I'm actually, uh. <laughs> I like to say I went in and I, I didn't, but, you know, went in and gave it the 19% rating it deserved <laughs> on, uh, on Rotten Tomatoes because it's a terrible movie. But yeah. there you have Your it. Your identity was stolen a third time. A third time, exactly. That's how it feels. Like, oh my God, <laughs> I can't keep my own intellectual property even. Oh man. Well, I mean, that's that's a pretty good actor, Jason Bateman, to play you. That's pretty good with his with his yeah, Ozark. Fans. Yeah, I know. He's not as good as in Ozark, though. That's a uh see, he's just a uh, devious dude no matter what. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. What's that movie called again? Identity Thief. Identity Thief. Okay. Okay, yeah. cool. Um I don't recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. Well, John, 
You mentioned some ways that people can protect their personal identities. And, and a lot of the things that you mentioned apply to businesses as well, whether it's implementing multi-factor authentication or other things like that. Is there recommendations that you have for businesses that are different from individuals? Yeah, very different though they bridge from the individual. So the first is you've got to train your people. If there is one thing universally that does not happen well, it's training your internally your people and even your customers to understand what fraud and cybercrime is. Um, things like social engineering, you know, a phishing technique. I send you something, it looks like you should click on it. You click on it, it downloads software that infects the systems and you know it's ransomware or whatever mm. oh john or it I gotta, uploads credentials i gotta pause you there because you are speaking my language that is literally something that we pick up in our cyber policy we created a video about social engineering how it goes down and we have found that employee error is one of the number one causes of hacking attacks so i just want to reiterate exactly what you're saying but continue yeah, so that's that's really important though because a lot of people haven't heard that word, you know, social engineering. It's just human manipulation. It's using our emotions, our trust, our goodness as human beings against us to get data or access. And that's why, you know, when I go into an audience and you know, we're having fun, but when I live hack an iPhone for the audience, it sends the message of, okay, I may know a lot about this topic or fraud or cybercrime. And yet that guy just got into my phone in less than a minute mm -hmm. using social engineering. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's you almost Pat, you almost have to feel it mm -hmm. to get it. Mm -hmm. It's not like I can tell you intellectually what social engineering is and it, it comes through. But once you've felt it and then you say, hey, here's what a phishing email looks like. Mm -hmm. Here's what disinformation campaigns or a deep fake video man, it starts to, to click in. So number one, you got to train your people. It doesn't matter how much technology, how shiny it is, how much you spend. If you don't have your people trained, it's worth nothing. Mm -hmm. Next would be ransomware. I would say you got to pay attention to ransomware. You've got to have strong backups. So ransomware, are you familiar with, with how it works? Oh, yeah, more familiar <laughs> than you could ever know. It's <laughs> I, sure. pro I probably talk about it on a daily basis, but the top two claims that we see are social engineering and ransomware. So I'll let you dive into it. Yeah. So ransomware, you know, you click on that link, you download this malicious piece of malware. It freezes up a computer. It spreads through the network to the other computers. Everybody's now working at home as well. It spreads to the homes, puts a, a nasty thing up on the screen. If you don't pay this money in Bitcoin, you know, we're going to delete all of your data. They show you the data so you know that they've got it. Oh, they yeah. show you emotional pictures or Excel files or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then they give you a countdown clock. You've got 60 minutes to pay in Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Well, I, most people don't know how to pay in Bitcoin. I don't know how to pay in Bitcoin. So they give you a chat box. Mm -hmm. Literally, you can talk to the criminals directly. I mean, they've got better customer service than most <laughs> of our cable companies. I know. I know. It's real. And half the time you pay it and you get your data back in some form. And half the time you never see it again. You just wasted your money. I know. We we literally have on our claims team, we have ransomware negotiators and a war room that is built to wow. negotiate with these ransomware criminals. They they are like real companies, like real enterprises. And yeah, exactly what you're saying. Those, those chatbots and those... those um, individuals exist to <laughs> semi-assist you through the process. So <laughs> yep. it's crazy. It is. And, you know, when, when audiences ask me or when I'm standing in front of people and they're like, you know, what, what are some of the, the unintended benefits that we don't know about of cyber insurance? I got to say, having a group that's gone through it before on your side yeah. that knows who to call, knows the procedure, has some background in the negotiating, knows when it's not going to work. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. it's an invaluable service. You got to look at this as risk management. This yeah. is not just about building higher walls, right? Mm -hmm. This is about what do I do to, if there's a hurricane, what am I going to do? What's my contingency plan? If there's a cyber attack, ransomware, we go down, what is my backup? What's my mm -hmm. contingency? And that's where I think insurance really comes in. Yeah. As more devices get connected to the internet, the 
more potential there is to get hacked. And I, I really think cyber insurance is something that it's going to grow into one of the mo most important risk management strategies for businesses in the 21st century. And it's, it's already, it's, it's already getting there from a hard market standpoint and from a claim standpoint. So, and it's, it's like, man, in, in almost every call I have with almost like a similar MGA that does another product, they're wondering how cyber can be integrated somehow into that specific product that they're selling. So I totally agree with you. Um, and John, I know we uh, we have we're we're coming up on time here, so I'd love to jump into our now four rapid fire questions because you already answered one of them. Um, if that's okay <laughs> with you, you bet. Um, okay. So your story, your I guess almost three stories of identity theft are pretty wild. Have you ever heard of uh, a hacking attack or cyber attack story on an individual? that's worse than yours. Oh my God, I hear it at every speech, almost. Yeah. You can't believe what people have been through. And when I'm done speaking, it kind of gives people, because I'm vulnerable up there, it gives people the permission to let me know their stories. Mm -hmm. So uh, one that I heard recently was a professor at a uh, public university in the US had his identity stolen his um uh, it was medically stolen somebody else had surgery utilizing his medical benefits oh. he did not have them he contracted cancer it was a oh. battle for the um for the if he had benefits if he could have the surgeries he could not have the surgeries the story did not end well so uh, i hear stories all the time that trump mine believe it or not and it just shows you how pervasive it is and how bad it can get if you don't think that this can happen to you. Yeah, it's real. And, and people a lot of times are not inclined to advertise them. No, right. that's that's kind of, you know, something I've done differently is I decided mm -hmm. to expose my vulnerability mm -hmm. and what I went through mm -hmm. for the sake of others. And but I have to tell you, 99 out of 100 companies I work with don't ever expose what has happened to their client. Data. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they don't want the 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 negative PR, and I really appreciate you sharing your story because it, it helps everybody else learn. Okay, number two, John, what is your favorite cybersecurity firm in the U.S.? Wow, favorite cybersecurity firm in the U.S. Um, I would say it has it's a company called Carbon Black. Okay, yeah, um, I love the. The people there, they're they're very forthcoming with the information they gave me. They got purchased by VMware, who just got purchased by Broadcom. So I don't know how they are now that they've been purchased so many times. But man, when I work with the people forensically at, at Carbon Black or whatever, they're awesome. Cool, cool. This is a little bit of a curveball and not necessarily associated with your identity theft stories. But what was the best part of going to Harvard? Oh man, the people, the people, <laughs> you know, we you watch TV and of course they play up the stuffy, you know, pain in the ass Harvard students or Ivy League students. And there definitely those exist like in every environment. But the number of interesting people who were well-read, wanted to have good conversations, were focused more on what they could do to change the world. In many cases, there were the, the you know, the money people too. I still keep in touch with with a bundle of of people from my class that are such good-hearted people. Without question, it was the the kind, quality people that I met. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. I'm very jealous. We always say that Loyola Marymount University is the Harvard of the West Coast. <laughs> Joking, <Absolutely>. jokingly, of course. <laughs> um, I, I appreciate that, though. Um, so you've spoken to some really interesting, famous people and outlets about your story when it comes to Anderson Cooper, Fox Business, NBC, Rachel Ray, ABC, Dr. Oz, Fox and Friends. The list goes on and on and on. When you're talking to any of these people, have you ever been starstruck or have you ever talked to a celebrity about your story where you're like, you know, a little taken aback? You know, I actually was a bit too. One was early on, um, uh, 
no oh God, I can't even remember her name. Uh, Susie Orman, you know, I met when I did a bunch for the Department of Defense and I was really new and I was kind of nervous. But I have to say, Rachel Ray, who I like cooked meatballs with and stuff, and she like hugged me on stage and, <laughs> you know, was very, um, very interactive. I was definitely a little bit starstruck uh-huh. dealing with her because it was just so fun. You know, uh-huh. a lot of times these people are so controlled. She was not. Yeah. She was just like out there. That's super cool. Well, John, that that wraps up the the questions that we had laid out. I'd love for you to just describe the, for the audience where they can find you. And I, there's a, a few avenues I know you have. Speaking is a huge one. Your books are a huge one. I know you also have some virtual trainings, but if you want to just break all that down, so if someone's interested in learning more or hiring you or bettering their own cybersecurity, um, I would love for them to, to know where to find all that. You bet. Well, what I love to do most is to keynote conferences. The audience almost doesn't matter because data theft happens in every industry at every size, including small business. That's actually where a majority of the breach happens is small business. So standing on a stage at a a keynote or general session presentation is is my wheelhouse, keeping it fun and interactive and kind of getting through security fatigue, which everybody has. The way to get a hold of me is just my website. It's my last name, Cilio.com, S-I-L-E-O.com. Um, you can get everything there. My business manager is, is Sue. Uh, we've got a staff here who does research, and you can get in touch with any of them or just call and ask to talk to me and let me know where you came from, and I'm happy to talk to you about any type of event you're planning. John, thank you again, man. I really I couldn't think of a better compliment to everything we do at Evolve MGA on a daily basis in regards to cyber insurance, simplifying cyber exposure, and letting people know that this stuff is real. And you are a living example of that. So I can't thank you enough for sharing your story, spending some time with me, and I'm excited to see the audience response from this episode because it hits home on so many levels within the insurance industry and cyber insurance specifically. Yeah, I appreciate it. And and as you've figured out, it's also an amazing service to add to your offering on insurance to give some education. It creates loyalty and share of wallet and everything else. So I appreciate you having me on and doing the work that you do. Thank you so much, John. We'll talk soon. Okay, great. Please download, subscribe, and leave a review on whatever platform you are listening on. And feel free to reach out to me at Pat at evolvedbrokerpodcast.com with any comments or suggestions for the podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by First Insurance Funding. First is the leading premium finance company in insurance and is known throughout the industry for their personalized service and quote flexibility. If you're tired of sending quote requests for smaller premiums to multiple companies, not leaving enough time to negotiate larger opportunities, then choose First as your primary financing source and experience the first difference today. 